Hello and welcome to the Kickback Podcast. My name is Dan Huff, Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex. Today we're going to do um, something slightly different from the kickback norm in that we are going to talk a little bit about why corruption exists. Now, for many, this is a blindingly obvious question with a blindingly obvious set of answers. But most of us who followed the world of corruption and anti-corruption research will recognise that there are different perspectives on this. And we're going to unpack those for a number of reasons to try and work out one. Uh, what the state of the debate really is, and and secondly, where it perhaps needs to go next. So to do that, very pleased to welcome Professor Liz David Barrett, also with me here at the University of Sussex as Professor of Governance and Integrity, but also wearing another hat, um, Head of the Global Programme on Measuring Corruption in Vienna with IACA. Liz, how are you? I'm great, Dan. Good to see you. And you, Sam, as well. Good, good. And you're you're not in either of those places, Brighton or Vienna. Well, you're in Oxford, aren't you? I'm in Oxford at the moment, actually. Yeah. Good stuff. And the sun's shining? The sun is shining, yeah. Well, I've got to be very British about this. It's going to be 29 degrees here in the United Kingdom today. This is like, you know, Britain falls apart when you get to 29 degrees. So, um, so yeah, we've, we're, we're all trying to work out what to do with a heat wave. Many of our listeners will think you're just lightweights. Well, what, you know, 29 degrees, hold my beer. But uh, for us, it's pretty warm, isn't it? And is it the same on a plane? I'm sure I should have been born in a warmer country. Oh, I think plenty of us would say the same, Liz. Uh, No doubt about that one. The same on the South Coast, Sam. My colleague, Dr. Sam Power, uh, is with us and he's he's in Brighton. How's it looking there? Yeah, it is is sunny, but it is is also windy because we're on the coast. um, And I can attest to that because I was pretty much getting blown down the hill by the wind as I was trying to cycle up it. But hopefully that means the cycle home will be pretty speedy. British people never, ever satisfied with the weather they've got, right? It's either too hot, too cold, too wet, too windy, too something. And, and that sort of fits the bill, right? We, we, we had a student on our, uh, on our online MA a few years ago who, who was, lived, in, lived in the UK, but was initially, uh, originally from Chile. And uh, she would always open up the Zoom sessions that we did by mentioning how, how the weather was. And I was saying, I was saying to her, you know, you really have assimilated well in in British society if this is your go-to conversation. So uh, yeah, she any, anything to do with the weather and also never being happy with it is about right. Yeah. Oh, should we talking about brands of tea next? You know, oh, she's right. really gone the full Monty then when she's talking about different types of tea and how you make your tea. We'll get to that on another podcast. Though. We need a whole pod for that sort of stuff. Good, good. Now I mentioned that um, we want to talk a little bit about why corruption exists. A pretty fundamental question because if you're going to tackle corruption it's probably good to know a little bit about why it's there in the first place so you can get at the roots of the problem. With that in mind, Liz, where would you start if I was to ask you um, why corruption exists? I think the, you know, the main framework that we have for thinking about why corruption exists is what's called the principal agent theory or framework. And essentially the idea here I think there's you know there's a big assumption behind it that people who have power, entrusted power, are going to be looking for opportunities to abuse it. So there's almost a, an assumption that corruption is a sort of the normal behavior. And and then the problem is seen as how do you control those people who've got entrusted power? So the ones who've got entrusted power are seen usually as the agents, and the ones who should be controlling them are the principals. And and then the crux of the problem is that it's difficult for the principal to control the agent because they can't really observe how the agent's behaving. 
So there's what's called often an asymmetric information problem, that the principal doesn't really know what's going on with the agent. They can't really control that. And therefore, the agent will take those opportunities that come up to behave corruptly. And who is the principal and who's the agent, um, you might ask. So you can use this model for lots of different settings. So, I mean, you could have it that, um, for example, the, the agent are employees of a company and the principal is the shareholders. And in talking about political corruption, we're often talking about the agents being politicians and public officials, and they should be controlled by the public and by the electorate. So the principal would be the public and the electorate there. But again, really difficult for the public to see what or to really observe what public officials and politicians are doing and to be able to control their behaviour and hold them to account for that. And there's a number of assumptions that are that run through all of this thinking, right? And, and one, one of the most obvious ones is that human beings are rational actors and respond to incentives around them, right? Yeah, absolutely. So so then the, the theory sort of goes on to think about, well, how do you control this corruption? And it's basically around trying to reduce that asymmetric information problem. So make it easier to observe what the agent's doing. So, for example, the whole idea of transparency as a tool for countering corruption is basically you know, is based on this idea that if you can expose how those public officials are behaving you give more information about you know who they're having meetings with and um you know how they're conducting themselves then it's easier for the principal the public civil society etc journalists um to hold them to account for what they're doing because you've kind of reduced that asymmetric information problem and it also sort of moves on then into not just sort of reducing the the um, information problem but then also being able to better um, control and change the incentives of the agent. So the other step that is then often made is that the principal needs to be able to put in place kind of <clears throat> structures that change the incentives of the agent to try and get the agent to actually be interested in um, in doing the things that the principal wants. So you're trying to kind of align the interests of the principal and the agent so that even if the principal can't be controlling watching every single move, the agent's actually interested in doing what the principal wants. Yeah, that, and that's that's very often found, this approach is very often found in in journal articles on, on corruption all around the world. It's, it's, it's a widely um, appreciated attempt to understand why corruption happens. That being said, different approaches will look at the nature of this problem quite differently, right? An economist and an anthropologist may understand uh, where they're starting from a bit differently, right? And I guess one set of people may be keener on the principal agent approach than the other, Liz. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, I think, coming out of a much more economics kind of viewpoint. Um, so as you said, it's talking about kind of rational actors who are making calculations about how they should behave, and then they're deciding on the basis of those calculations. So again, this whole idea that you can change the incentives facing agents. So maybe you know you put in place really harsh sanctions if they behave corruptly. Um, so you're sort of increasing the cost. Um, if you like have more oversight over them, then you're increasing the risk that they're going to get caught as well. So again, um, what you're doing there is you're you're saying you're trying to create a situation in which the agent who's thinking, shall I behave in the proper way or shall I behave corruptly, is thinking, well, what are the risks and costs of behaving corruptly? And weighing those up against the benefits of behaving corruptly, which is going to be some private gain or 
personal gain for themselves. So again, you know, very much thinking about this in terms of someone who can make those calculations. An anthropologist is much more likely to say, well, hang on, actually, um, we don't think that people behave like that. We think actually they're embedded in these different contexts and environments. And they tend to think much more about, well, just how does everyone here behave? Um, so you know, uh, one idea is around this idea of a logic of appropriateness. What are the kind of rules, norms that you follow in this kind of context? And rather than constantly making calculations, people are just kind of following what everyone else does, what is kind of the norm in that context. And, and so anthropologists would encourage us to consider much more about that social context and the sort of richer approach to thinking about all those social constraints on us, not just the kind of, am I going to get caught and am I going to get punished kind of approach. Yeah, and our logics of appropriateness is an interesting too. I actually experienced this yesterday. Myself. I've got two seven-year-old boys, as some of this might already know, because I bang on about it all the time. But they, they keep talking to me about supporting the wrong football teams, Liz. And I live a long way away from the team I want them to support. And so the logics of appropriateness hitting them at school. <laughs> all the other kids are talking about horrible things like, I don't know, Chelsea. <laughs> and I, you know, I've got a job in my hands here because the logic of appropriateness for those guys is to go for one of these teams. Um, and um, rest assured, it ain't happening. But but it, but it, it's totally the type of process that you're talking about. Now, Sam, you've written a lot on uh, from what I would argue is, is a broadly new institutionalist perspective. Can you take up some of those ideas that Liz has mentioned there and, and talk to us a bit more about about how they critique this uh, this sort of mainstream approach? Yeah, yeah, sure. I thought for a minute there you were going to say that because you lived a long way away from the team that you support, that you were getting some kind of stick from your children that about supporting Shrewsbury Town and that was some somehow a weird thing Am to I do. I get stick from my children every day of the week. There is nothing new there. Don't rest assured, stick comes my way in plentiful supply. But in terms but, of logic yeah. appropriateness. Um, so so the, the first thing to note, I think, is that what what Liz has outlined there and talking about the different, I suppose, disciplines that, that, that look at this is, is that that is very much what this is born out of. And I always think the best way to summarise the position of the two disciplines or one of the best couple of sentences that summarise these differences um, can be found in uh, Susan Rose Ackerman's book, Corruption in Government, the first edition. I, the, the, this preface is not in the second edition, but I think the first edition really neatly sums it up. And she says that economics is a powerful tool for the analysis of corruption. Economics is a powerful tool for the analysis of corruption. So we know where she's coming from. And then she says, cultural differences and morality provide nuance and subtlety, but an economic approach is fundamental to understanding where corrupt incentives are the greatest and have their biggest impact. And in those two sentences, you can pretty much summarise the whole debate in corruption analysis from about the 1970s through to the present day, frankly. You've got economics as this powerful tool which outlines incentives, and then you've got these cultural differences and morality, which provide nuance and subtlety. But for many scholars, perhaps that just muddies the picture of what we're doing here and trying to explain human behaviour. And the, the, the institutionalist position is built out of a critique of this economic approach. And it's built out of a, the two basic assumptions of the economic approach, or the, the, the broadly speaking, the rational choice approach. And that is um, two assumptions based on the idea of choice, 
and based on the idea of predictability. So the two assumptions of the rational choice approach are broadly that we have choice, i.e. we are agents, the principal agent theory, we are all individual agents and we all have choice over the decisions that we make. But secondly, that we are all predictable in what we I do. I find that quickly, I find that fascinating because the rational choice approach to this doesn't give you any choice at all. You've got to be well, rational. Precisely. That's the second like a robot. You've got to follow your your, your rational choices. You know, it's impossible but, to be irrational, isn't it? You're not a robot. You are predictable. So we all have a choice, but we all make the same choice. And that is that we all act in our own self-interests. So that's the two assumptions. We have a choice, we are agents, but we all broadly do the same thing. We are predictable, we act in our own self-interests. But those two things are the fundament of what an, an institutionalist scholar, a new institutionalist scholar critiques, which is that firstly, we don't actually have as much choice as people expect. This is based on long-standing debates and polls between you know, the, the, the power of structures and the power of agents. And institutionalists see the, the scales much more on the side of structures and institutions as opposed to agents. So an institutionalist would first say, we don't actually have as much choice as, as, as a rational choice scholar would suggest. And they would also say that actually we're not all that predictable or, or we're not predictable in the way that rational choice scholars suggest that we are. So actually we are not rational, we are irrational. We act irrationally in all kinds of different ways all of the time. Best example is voting. There's no point in voting. Voting is a completely irrational thing to do. Very rarely does an election come down to one vote. So me going out and putting my putting my cross in the box is completely pointless. But I do it because I, I think, think in UK history, Sam, just for the record, the closest ever result in a uh, constituency, two votes, Mark Owen and Winchester. So one person voting, completely pointless, an irrational thing to do. But we do it. So, so, so there's two basic disagreements, which is that actually it's about, we, we should think much more about institutions and the power of institutions than the power of agents. So we should think much more about structure and um, we shouldn't necessarily have this view of humans as rational. We're not, we're completely irrational. And sometimes we behave well, sometimes we behave badly. Sometimes we will engage in corruption because we've been given the opportunity to, sometimes we won't. And there's all kinds of different explanations for that. And what an institutionalist tries to do is think about the power of institutions in deciding these relationships and in explaining why corruption happens. And one of the ways in which this has developed is precisely as Liz was discussing in the, the in what we would call informal institutions and the way in which informal institutions guide certain bits of certain behavior. So this is, you know, socially shared, unwritten rules that sort of guide us on a path such that corruption quite often isn't a choice. It's not a rational choice. It is either given to us, uh, we, we, we are corrupt because, because that is just the way that things are done. And it's, it's, it can be unavoidable. Or there's just a norm that builds up over time, which means that um, which means that corruption um, either does or doesn't occur. And this is a long there's a long-standing scholarship which outlines the precise ways in which this might happen. Logic of appropriate behaviour being one of the particular strands of that. And I remember from from years ago there was a very nice piece written by a couple of very very well respected political economists on the United Nations. 
and parking tickets. Do you remember that one, Sam, when you talk us through it? It talks a lot about structures and agents, doesn't it? And it's it's quite, it's a nice, crisp, clear and concise analysis of exactly the type of challenge that we're trying to get a grip on here. Yeah, I, I, I love this piece. Um, so it's from the mid, mid-2000s. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why I love this piece, which which, which I'll tr- try and outline. So, so what this was, what what this what this paper tried to do, these these economists tried to do, was um, think about corruption and norms. And the way that they decided to do that was through parking in New York City. Now, that's a really useful, really useful case study for a number of reasons. You only have to watch any TV show to understand that parking in New York City is uh, an absolute disaster. I've never driven in New York City, but I know that I don't want to try and park in New York City. Looks like look, looks like a nightmare. So that's it, it's an interesting case study for that reason. The other reason it's an interesting case study is because the UN's in um, in New York City. Um, so that means there's a whole lot of diplomats going around with diplomatic immunity, which means that they can, as much as they like, accrue parking fines and they don't have to pay them because uh, because they have diplomatic immunity. So what these what what, what these economists did is um, is is look and compare the parking fines accrued by um, the diplomats of different countries and the uh, the CPI, so the Corruption Perceptions Index, and saw if there was any correlation between the kinds of countries that accrued lots of parking fines and didn't pay them, and the kinds of countries that uh, that didn't. And lo and behold, there was quite a there was quite a close correlation between this, which is that um, which is that the countries that performed very well on the CPI, which uh, which had low perceived levels of corruption, didn't really accrue all that many. All that many parking fines, um, and when they did, they paid them. And the countries that were very poorly performing did just just accrued these parking fines. And the argument there is that actually this shows you that that it's not just about human behaviour; it's about norms, and norms are often given to you by uh, by, by a particular by, by a particular country or by a particular culture. That said. And what is interesting, and what a rational choice scholar or an inst- uh, or an economic scholar might um, caveat that with and tell you is that there's also an addendum to this story, which is that in the mid 2000s they changed the rules and they said, you know what, you can't do anymore. You can't, you can't not pay your parking fines. You might have diplomatic immunity, but you can't pay anywhere, and you can't not pay your parking fines. And do you know what happened? Nobody accrued parking fines anymore. So the, uh, the the economic scholar would say, okay, yeah, you can see that norms and culture make a difference, but what did we do? We lowered the incentive costs, or, or we, 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 we disincentivize people from doing it, and they stop doing it. So it shows you that whilst there are genuine philosophical differences here that go right back to things like structure and agency, there's also an interplay. Um, and there's also ways in which both are compelling and convincing explanations. Yeah, I think that addendum's really interesting, actually, Sam, because certainly some of the debates you hear um, in classrooms up, you know, around the world would have you believe it's one or the other. You're either a principal agent scholar or you talk about the important, uh, importance of context, importance of settings um, and appropriateness. And of course, you don't have to do that at all. Both of these approaches can have, make a contribution to understanding why corruption happens and, of course, what we can what we can do about it moving forward. And it's surely obvious to say that, but it doesn't always look obvious when I see some of the research that's done in a very particular tradition as if the wider world doesn't necessarily exist. Now, one of the phrases you used, or one of the terms you used was about norms. And there's been quite a lot of stuff done on, on, on norms and the importance of norms in affecting behaviour in, in recent in recent times. Liz, what, what do you make of that? Is that, is that contribution being, being genuinely significant? 
Yeah, I think that's been one of the really interesting developments in the last sort of 10 years or so that we talk much more as corruption scholars about social norms. And the way this often comes up is in terms of thinking about, so what is happening when we when we talk about this sort of cultural stuff or the context, what's really going on there? And, and essentially the idea is that in a particular kind of community or a reference group, there are these kind of informal rules about how you behave. And so they might say, for example, that, you know, there are social norms about all things like, I don't know, um, how you dress when you go into certain situations or um, um, how you behave in a certain profession. But they're all sort of related to these different reference groups. And so what a lot of the people looking at social norms have done in terms of corruption have said, well, actually, that means then that if you're operating in a certain context, um, you're also facing pressures from these social norms. Now, they're giving you guidance about how you should behave in this reference group or in this context or setting. In some ways, it's not a million miles away from the rational choice approach, because they're still saying that how you behave is influenced by, for example, if you're going to be shamed by your community for not behaving in a certain way. Um, so it might be that if you don't follow the local norm, you get ostracized or you get you know, people you know, looking down on you. And so it, there is this still a sort of rational element to it, but it's just a much more socially complex part of that. And then um, the interesting thing is that some of these norms might actually push you to behave in ways that are corrupt. So you know, if there is a strong norm that, well, you really should you know, pay when you go to the hospital and you know, maybe there's a lot of justifications around it that, you know, well, the nurses and the doctors are not well paid and they also need to support themselves. Then actually, if you don't pay the the fee or the bribe when you go, then actually you might be shamed within your community. So social norms can actually work to encourage and support corruption in a way if the norm is such that it's it's seen as acceptable in a certain um, community. I think there's also, you know, just going back to what you talked about in terms of relationship between laws and norms. Again, we tend to often see those as really separate things, but there's interplay there too. So we sort of assume that laws work through this rational choice model, again, that if there's a chance of being, big chance of being caught and a big punishment, then you're going to deter certain corrupt behaviour. But actually, you know, what the social norms literature is contributing to that is partly it's saying well, actually, there are a lot of other things going on in your kind of economic and social environment that might mean you need to be corrupt as a kind of coping mechanism. So corruption that is kind of functional um, in a situation where it's difficult to get access to public services or something. So you're not just going to be thinking about that kind of legal context. You're going to be thinking about those things, too. But also that laws don't just work through that deterrent effect, but they also they send a signal about what's appropriate and what's acceptable in a community. So when you change the law, partly you sort of change the norm, actually. Yeah, I find that fascinating. So I, I, I mean, we, we, we know we've all been lucky enough to be able to travel. And certainly I live in an international household. And some of the norms that, that I experience, some of the norm clashes are fascinating. Yeah. They really are. I mean, I, I often say to anyone who listen that I know that China is making progress in terms of fighting corruption when people on mopeds, don't go the wrong way down one-way streets all the time because they do now. The norm is that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It might say go this way, but if I want to go the other way, then I'll just go the other way. 
the norm yeah. says that the sign is, is is largely irrelevant. And and of course, in a one, a one way street in 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 the United Kingdom, I yeah, I generally probably go the right way down down, down one way street. And that's just because the norm says it's what you do. It made me think about your comment about voting there, Sam, because there's a lot of norm reinforcement going on when we vote. But also, wouldn't a rational choice got to come back and say that I do feel a little bit better after I voted? I do feel that it's rationally I've made a contribution to society functioning, even if the people I voted for didn't win. So there is a rational choice argument for voting, even if you know your one the vote, your one vote is very, very unlikely to be decisive, right? Well, well, yeah, precisely. And, uh, you know, the, the, the voting examples are a useful one to use because it's got a long-standing, a, a long-standing history as a, a sort of... Not, not There's a lot of literature on it, is it? As yeah, well, there's a lot of literature on why people vote. Why would you bother? Especially given that, you know, rational choice is, is really predominant in understanding why, why corruption occurs, but it's, it's, it's predominant in the field of political science. And if it was as easy to uh, critique rational choices saying, well, what about voting? Um, and everyone uh, packed their stuff up and went to bed, then uh, th- th- then we wouldn't have much of a discipline. Um, so then it comes on to this idea of collective action, frankly, and um, and, and the, the the different ways of understanding rationality, and that perhaps we don't we don't act simply purely rationally in our own. You know, we're not individuals acting rationally, but we can act rationally as a collective. And what we can see is that democracy is broadly in our self-interests it is we we are we are self-interested actors and we think that democracy is broadly a good thing so that we we know we have to buy in to the the system of democracy um and that there are certain costs to doing that Um, and let's face it voting isn't much of a cost it's a it's a five minute walk well it was for me it's it's a five minute walk up the hill um in the local elections to put my cross in a box now of course you know there's countries where they make voting voting considerably harder and they they make those opportunity costs higher and that's where the rational choice scholar would uh, would come in with all kinds of uh, all kinds of different arguments but basically it comes down to um collective action so it's about understanding that we can act collectively collectively um, rationally and then we get into all kinds of issues of collective action problems and um, corruption as collective action problems so so this is where you know the, the rational choice scholar does not simply say oh yeah you're right actually we're not all rational all of the time I best I best rethink my uh, I, I best rethink my, my my way of seeing the world there's all kinds of different ways of understanding how we are rational and in what context we act rationally that, um, that that rational choice scholars have come up with. Collective action being one of them, a kind of bounded rationality, which which we don't necessarily need to get into in, in this short conversation on corruption. But uh, that, yeah, there's all kinds of ways of thinking about how rational choice moves beyond that pretty important critique that we're not actually rational. Yeah, I mean, I think you've dealt with my, my bouncer there pr- pretty effectively. Sam, actually, that uh, yeah, rational choice doesn't claim to explain the world, and those who say that it does are doing it a disservice. There are plenty of nuances here that um, uh, that, that others might want to dive into once they finish listening to this podcast. Given all that list, there's a lot going on here. Okay, two, two, three, a number of broad perspectives. If you had the power to direct where researchers in the world of corruption went next in terms of understanding why corruption happens, where would you begin? 
So I think a really interesting sort of adaptation of where we've got to with some of this um, in terms of the social norms and the collective action is to think about how our identity as part of different collectives or reference groups uh, affects our behaviour. And so it seems to me in theory possible that you know what we're trying to do when we build integrity, for example, in certain circumstances, is to get people to put one reference group and the norms of that reference group above the norms in a different reference group. So maybe you've got a kind of conflict between what you're expected to do in your village. Maybe you're expected that, you know, when you get into the position of mayor, you're supposed to give jobs to all of your cousins, for example. So that would be a kind of village norm. But then maybe there's a reference group of mayors and people in public office, which says when you're in public office, you should be serving the public interest and you should put that before any kind of private interests. So in a sense, you can see anti-corruption as a sort of trying to get people to place the, the collective, one collective or one reference group above another and getting them to think, well, maybe I should put the professional um, ethics here of being a, a public servant and the norms that are expected of someone who's in public office to serve the public interest. I should put that above the norms that are coming from my village that I should give my cousin a job. Yeah, I hear where you're coming from there. Sam, or, 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 how would you deal with that question about next steps? Where do you think the most interesting places uh, are in terms of, of this debate moving forward? So, so I think the most, the most fruitful approaches tend to, I suppose, move out of their encampments, frankly, because you, you, you know, there's talking about incentives. Um, yeah, you, you have a, you have a high incentive structure in academia to take a position and stick with it. Um, and then critique lots of other positions and and to really outline why your way of thinking about the world is is the best way of thinking about the world and why everyone else is wrong. And yeah, there, there, there's incentives to do that. You might you might publish highly. People might start listening to you. People might start thinking that your way is the best way of thinking about the world. But I think in terms of boots on the ground change and in understanding why corruption occurs, the most the most clear solutions happen where you see the benefit and the use of the different way different ways of seeing of seeing the world and different ways of explaining behavior so i always you, the, the the work that does that the work that doesn't just say well look at look, let's look at the incentives incentives are the most powerful tool and i i, I quoted susan rose ackman there but it's slightly unfair i don't, I don't think she would there's a reason why it's in a 1999 book and not in a 2016 book i suspect that, that actually once we move out of seeing incentives as the main cause or move away from just critiquing rational choice as um as as a sort of old hat paradigmatic way of explaining all kinds of behavior that doesn't make sense anymore moving beyond that and seeing the value in perhaps some kind of consolidated way of viewing it view, viewing human behavior and indeed corruption so i like to think of the interest-based scholarship, economic approaches, rational choice, as as what I call an organising perspective. So um, to have it as a starting point, because it's useful and it's pretty simple to understand, and to think, okay, let's assume that people are predictable and that people are rational. And actually, we're seeing all these kinds of different areas where they're not behaving all that rationally. Why is that? 
And how can we explain that? And how can the different approaches, perhaps an idea about uh, the, the role of ideas and norms, how can that help us to flesh this out? How can institutions and structures help us to understand why this happens? And the way that I always think about it is, I can remember when I was a, when I was a PhD student teaching, teaching undergraduates methods, and we used, to, we used to read a chapter, which was called a skin and not a sweater. And the idea behind that was that you had, um, it, was, it was about philosophy and the way that you see the world. And the idea was that the philosophy and the way that you saw the world was a skin. It was a skin that you that, 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 that was a part of you effectively. It was not a sweater and you, you couldn't take it off. You can take it off and put it on as, as you pleased. And I think that I just fundamentally disagree with that, frankly, and that actually it's much more useful to see things as sweaters and not skins and look at the context that's given to us, look at the behaviour that's happening and look at the vast range of, um, of explanations for why that behaviour might occur, perhaps starting with something as simple as are people behaving rationally here and then building out from that and using the varied toolbox that we have. And I think that if we if if we approach things as context driven as opposed to theory driven, then perhaps we'll get somewhere because we can think about the context and then we can apply lots of different theories to those contexts to then create a more fruitful explanation of a whole. But if we start from a position of, well, rational choice is just complete cobblers um, and we need to apply this particular way of seeing the world, then I don't think we're going to get anywhere really. So the best approaches, I think, try and consolidate and think about context first and then think about how theory can apply to that. I think it was one of the great philosophers of our time, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that famously said that um, only the dark side talks in absolutes, uh, Sam. And that that seems to resonate here, right? If you're talking in absolutes, well, it might sound quite, uh, um, you know, quite, quite convincing in, in some ways, but uh, it doesn't really get, get you any closer to understanding some of the complex interactions that make the world tick. Um, I don't know if you want to come back on Obi-Wan Kenobi, Liz, but uh, uh, do you want to come back on anything that Sam, Sam highlighted there? Um, I liked the fact that Sam used the sweaters because I've been thinking about it in terms of layers and basically just having different layers of understanding. And, you know, there's a, a kind of your your economic approach is stripping out a lot of the, the context and then you're adding some of that in by thinking about social norms and collective identities and collective action. So, yeah, I like I like the sweater analogy. And I was thinking about layering up as a um, um, what we should be encouraging scholars to do. To get the man who wrote that on the podcast, Sam, just to, he is Dave Marsh, very, very uh, entertaining guy, the loudest man I've ever met in political science. So, so it would be a loud podcast, but um, I'd be, I'd be fascinated to know how he, he, he came back on that. I'm not sure I'm brave enough to do it, but, uh, but anyway, sorry, I, I, I dived in there. No, no. Well, what, what I would say is to, to not necessarily row back on what I said, but I, I'd say that you know the, the sort of sweater and layering approach is not to say that you know we just need to throw everything into a bag and every every explanation is equally worthy my, my my position is that you know we do we do come from a starting point and my my basic starting point whilst I talk about rational choice as an organizing perspective is that probably that it's, we need to think about institutions more fundamentally and the way in which institutions, either formal or informal, guide behaviour. And other people would really disagree with that. And that's that's totally fine. But the it, it is also our job as social scientists to adjudicate amongst the complexity that we see and not simply say, oh, it's a bit of everything. 
Um, so let's try a bit of everything. But equally, we do need to row back a little bit from saying, well, it must be institutions or it must be interests that best explain this. And I think that whilst, whilst it is important to layer and to think about things as a sweater, we do need to remember that at some point we are adjudicating on, on a complex phenomenon such that you know we do have to we do have to make a decision about what we think at some point we're not just sitting on the fence but that doesn't mean that we have to be, come into these sort of entrenched positions where we just chuck stuff at each other constantly and don't really solve anything well that leads me to my last question actually sam and i'll go to you first with it i, I find all this intellectually fascinating and 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 you know ha have done for for years but a skeptic might say well that's all well and good dan but um why does it all actually matter what difference does it make? We know that corruption's out there. We can all see it, or most of it. Uh, we sort of recognise it. So wh why are you arguing, arguing about what at times can get, get very philosophical debates? What, what, how would you answer the so what question, if I were to pose it that way? And it's a good question, because a lot of these are the debates about theory, are debates about philosophy, are debates about explanation, and do end up being incredibly academic and quite often solutions are not necessarily incredibly academic they involve decisions that you need to make on the ground decisions that you need to make quickly and involve actors that might not have spent three years in a library reading about different theoretical frameworks and approaches to explaining human behavior um, and i think that's completely completely reasonable but i think my position and perhaps our job as academics is to say you're right but we need to understand human behaviour and we need to be able to explain corruption effectively before we can fight it, frankly, because if we can't explain why something's happening, then we can't really effectively think about ways of preventing it. So we'll go back to the interest based explanation. Basically, the interest based explanation is is, is around incentives and around getting incentive structures right. So what they say is they have a very or a relatively simple way of explaining human behavior. That becomes very complex if you end up in an economics department at a university, but with a relatively simple solution that you need to get the incentive structures right and something that is actionable. And you can't get to that actionable point without thinking about the theory. That doesn't mean that everybody has to do it. And it doesn't mean that um, it, it doesn't mean that we all have to spend three, four, five years or the rest of our lives arguing with each other about theories and about explanations of behavior. What it means is that perhaps those of us that have spent quite a lot of time doing it need to maybe get a little bit better at communicating that to, to, to people on the ground, people trying to enact, enact change, people trying to bring policies forward and to really explain that complexity, explain the different debates, probably I would suggest end up at the position of there's all these different debates, do with them what you will and find a way given the context that you have to think about solutions. But you can't think about those solutions without thinking about the debates first and without thinking about the explanations of behavior. Yeah, Liz, would you, would you bite into all of that? Yeah, I think so. Although we think that context is really important, if you if you always treat a problem of having to really understand fully the context, um, then it's just really time consuming, essentially, to, to look at all these contexts separately. And what we want to be able to do as social scientists is to have some generalizable conclusions. And so if rather than just looking at a context completely devoid of theory, if you've got some kind of theoretical basis which you're using to explore and try to understand and analyze different contexts, 
then the hope is that out of that you get evidence that can inform and change your theory and conclusions that are generalizable to other contexts. So rather than just having to treat everything as, um, you know, a really big investment in understanding all of the aspects, you can come up with a, a sort of rough idea of a solution that work seems to work here so might also work there although of course you know you're going to have to probably adapt it to that context too but the promise of theory is that actually you get this generalizable set of ideas about roughly how things work um given a fair wind yeah and i I think also i mean you know i'm one of those people someone knows i'm quite happy sitting in my ivory tower arguing about theories i've got no issue with that but I do acknowledge as well that not everybody else is going to be massively interested in that. So we, we do have an obligation, I think, to try and explain our thinking to a wider world in a rather more straightforward manner. Um, but theories are just explanations of why something happens. And if you want to solve something, then it's probably a decent idea to know why it's there in the first place. And a slightly flippant, but I think nonetheless very useful analogy would be if someone piled into a medical doctor's surgery and said, just give me some drugs. The medical doctor's not going to say, yeah, no worries. Here you go. He's going to say or she's going to say, what's wrong with you? And of course, that matters. If it's a broken arm, it's going to be very different to a chesty cough as to what, what you get in terms of the remedy. And a sensible medical practitioner will probably say, OK, so you've got a chesty cough. So let's have a think about what that, should we have a COVID test? It is 2023, these things still are here. So you, you go down that route. And then you might find out a bit about the background to the person. If it transpires they smoke 60 cigarettes a day, I'm not sure they need too many drugs, folks. And you stop smoking. So your remedy is going to be very dependent on how you've got to where you are. That doesn't mean that we have to understand the detail of every contextual situation every time. But I think having a vague idea that smoking does generally cause cause people to have chesty coughs will help you in dealing with the problem that's right in front of you there. And that's that's the, the way I personally try and take this sort of this sort of thing forward. Folks, fascinating discussion and, and we could definitely carry on. But we won't. I think there's more than enough for our listeners to get their teeth into. Um, as ever, we, we, we you know, we, we've written bits and bobs on this ourselves. There's plenty of literature out there on why corruption exists. I'd encourage anybody who's listening to dive into it. It's fascinating. And, and um, you know, there's plenty of interesting ways forward from there, too. So, Liz, thanks for, for popping in from Oxford. Sam from Brighton. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Sam. Cheers, Thank folks. You so much.